Welcome back. You're listening to episode 120 of Diferente. Wait, hold up. Before we go any further, I have something very important to ask you. Will you share this podcast with your friends? It's very easy to share the love by either texting a direct link to this episode or posting a screenshot and link to the show on your preferred social media platform. Make sure you tell them why you want them to listen. Thanks for your support. Now back to the show. This is the third installment in our Access series on Diferente. And in this episode, we're discussing access and mentors. Because when I think of access, I think of building relationships with people who are committed to making a positive impact in the lives of others and who lead by example. A great mentor can take you from zero to 60 in your profession by providing access in your desired field. But it's the personal relationship you build with a mentor that can have a lasting effect in the way you live your life. My guest has built an impactful career and has a long list of accomplishments. His name is Ken Bentley. He is a former VP at Nestle USA, but don't think that he's satisfied with a quiet retirement. Ken is busy making a positive impact on thousands of young people's lives as a member of the board of directors of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, the Tiger Woods Foundation, Texas College, the Southern California Tennis Association, and the Advocates Foundation. During a recent conversation with Ken, he said to me that he plans his life backwards, meaning he starts by visualizing what he would want people to say about him when he dies and about the legacy that he leaves behind. I think that's so powerful. In this episode, Ken shares valuable experience and advice in finding a mentor that you can create a thriving relationship with, how to get what you want, and how to develop our best selves. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on Diferente. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be on the show. I'm honored that you made time for us. So normally I ask this question last, but given that we're discussing the topic of access, I really want to start here. How do you define success? For me, success is really doing the best that's in you. I think that it's really doing the most with the gifts that God gives you. And I, I think what really brought that home to me, Arthur Ashe, who was a great tennis player and a great humanitarian who became a friend of mine, and people asked him at the end of his life, he died of AIDS, but people asked him, how did he want to be remembered? Did he want to be remembered as a guy who won the U.S. Open in Wimbledon? And did he want to be remembered as the number one player in the world? And he said, uh, simply, I, I just want to be remembered as a guy who did the best with what he had. And to me, that's success. If you do the best with the gifts that you have, then you're a success in life. Yeah. And that's really powerful because like we had talked before on the show, I think that success is all relative to an individual's perspective, right? So do you think that success ties in with achievement? Yeah, I do. 
I think that success definitely does tie into achievement. If you're, you have to set goals and objectives for yourself. And part of it is achievement, but I think the level of achievement depends on your ability. So I don't think you can compare yourself to other people. And that's where people or, or society's definition of success. Because I think that's what happens with a lot of people is that their definition of success is controlled by factors that they can't control. For instance, I have a a buddy whose son is a basketball player. And we talk about this a lot. I, I have a lot of conversations with his son because really he can't control how much time he plays in a game because that's up to the coach. The only thing, and I tell them this all the time, the only thing you can control is your effort. So we've set up uh, measures of success that may not make sense to other people, but to him now it does. And he's achieved a much uh, higher level of self-satisfaction, enjoys the game more, because we evaluate his performance by his effort. And I think if more people looked at that, I think they'd be happier. And, and would achieve more. I would agree with that. And also, I would add that success is tied into confidence. So you can't really be successful in whatever way that means to you without having confidence to achieve things. And you had shared with me a story before we started about when you were younger, having a different mentality. People back then, your parents, not, maybe not necessarily wanting you to be disappointed with life, telling you that maybe you shouldn't shoot for the stars or that maybe you shouldn't think that you could achieve things that are very out of your reach. How do you feel about that? And, and how does that kind of mentality affect someone? You know, when I grew up, life was different. I mean, you know, I did mention that my parents used to get upset when I changed jobs. But they also told me when I was growing up, when I was a kid, that I could be anything I wanted to be. I grew up with that feeling that I could be anything that I wanted to be, and there was no dream too big. But I think what happened was when I got a really good job, you know, to them, that was something that I shouldn't give up. You know, I remember uh, I was working at Anheuser-Busch as a marketing manager, and I took a step down. My next job, I left the company and took a lesser job because I knew eventually it would help me to get an even bigger job. Now, that was difficult for my parents to uh, to comprehend. Why would I take less money? It just didn't make sense to take less money. But I was looking at a bigger picture, and they came from a whole different environment. You know, my parents grew up during the Depression. They grew up in the Jim Crow South. So they couldn't comprehend somebody giving up less money. But my parents also didn't have the big vision because their world was different. So they could not see a person giving up money to take a job and a dream in the future. So I wrote a book called Men of Courage, which is a collection of biographies of African-American men. And so Herman Cain was one of the guys that I included in my book. And to me, he was an inspiration. Because Herman Cain had a big, big time job. He was vice president in a huge corporation. But he was, you know, faced with like a dead end. To him, he had reached his ceiling. And so he got interested in the whole pizza business. So he left this 
big three or four hundred thousand dollar a year job to go and run a pizza parlor, just a pizza store, because he wanted to learn the business. And so from that, he became president of one of the large uh, pizza companies, first African-American to ever be president. But here's a guy. Can you imagine what his parents said to him when he said, look, I'm going to give up this VP job and I'm going (laughs) to go and run a just work at a regular pizza store. (laughs) Right. But he, you know, he had that big vision and wasn't about what I'm doing today. It's about what I'm going to do for the future. Yeah. And that's the mentality that some people have to learn on their own and not maybe not necessarily learn from their families or from from their surroundings. They have to learn as they grow. So is that what happened to you? Do you feel like you had to learn to have the confidence to take risks in your career on your own? Or was that something that somebody else taught you like a mentor? You know, I was always kind of different. So I guess that's something that was kind of God given. I grew up in um, South Central LA in a largely African-American community. Nobody played tennis in my community. And I started playing tennis and fell in love with it. The only one really in the neighborhood. So I grew up as an African-American tennis player, the only one on the Southern California junior tennis circuit, when that was a really different path. I remember wearing my Letterman sweater with the tennis rackets on it and guys just like, wow, well, you're not really an athlete. Well, that's messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's messed up. But but and so I played basketball so I could just be part of the guys. But but still, it was that early thing of taking a different path. So it also, but tennis brought me to different communities. It just, you know, I got a scholarship to go to college, but it was a different path. And so I think all my life, it's I've chosen probably the road most difficult. And has that paid off? I think it has. I, I think there's uh, there's trials and tribulations with it. You know, there's certainly things you have to overcome and bumps in the road. But I wouldn't choose another path because I, I think it made me stronger. I know I, I tell this story all the time um, when I talk to corporate groups. I had eight jobs at Nestle and six of them. I was the first person to have that job. So even at Nestle, I was looking for different jobs that weren't even there. I was looking at jobs that that weren't created yet. So you were trailblazing your way through corporate America, I guess, back then. Yeah, I saw an opportunity and I created a job for that opportunity. I saw an opportunity for the company to make the company better. Did you have a mentor back then who kind of took you along the way and showed you how to get what you want, so to speak, because it sounds like you were a, truly a go-getter in your career. I had a few mentors. And, you know, again, it's something that I, I tell young people. You have a couple different kind of mentors. One are your peers, people that, that you go to school with, people that really support you and love you. They could be your age or even younger. I had two or three guys at Nestle who were my peers, one guy I grew up with, I've known since I was six years old, since we were six years old. And he ended up being a CEO in Nestle Waters. But he was a guy who could tell me, hey, man, you know, you're doing great. Or he would say, you messed up on this. And those are the kinds of people that you need in your life that'll, that'll love you enough to be honest with you to tell you that you messed up. But he also 
I remember, which was a turning point in my career, uh, I had a boss who told me that uh, I had basically peaked and I could uh, I didn't have the talent to go to the next level. And he told me, he said, hey, you could stay at Nestle for 30 years, but you'll never rise above a manager level. And I'll never forget that day he told me that. And I walked out of there and I realized I could go one of two paths. I could accept what he said, or I could determine my own future. And so I met with two of the guys that were at my level and my friends, and we crafted a path for me to get to be a vice president, to be a senior executive in the company. One was to identify people in the company that could support me in what I wanted to do. So then I started to have mentors who were the president of the company became my mentor, Joe Weller. Great guy, very spiritual. You know, I could talk to him about all kinds of stuff. He was involved in the community. He wanted to make the world better. We shared that comment. And see, I, I tell people all the time, your mentor doesn't have to look like you. You could find common ground with people. And here was a guy, Joe Weller was from Tennessee, grew up in the deep, segregated South, didn't uh, know a whole bunch of black people growing up. Uh, He used to tell me stories that when he was a kid, they used to have Klan rallies that would go right past his house, Ku Klux Klan rallies that would go right past his house. And he became one of the most ardent supporters of diversity. But what I found when I talked to him, The thing we had in common is that we wanted to make the world better. It wasn't about where we grew up or how we look, but this passion to make the world better. And you probably would have never known that had you not had a conversation. Conversation with If I didn't look at him and said, hey, this guy would never be my mentor because we're too different. But he used to give me, uh, at Christmas time, he would give me a ton of money and say, go out and buy Christmas gifts for poor people. I don't want anybody to know where the money came from. I just want to make Christmas better for some people. And that's the kind of guy he was. I mean, he was an amazing leader, amazing individual. But but there were a few people like that. Bill Gray is another one. Bill Gray was uh, the majority whip in Congress and president of UNCF for a long time. I learned a lot from Bill Gray. I learned about how to treat people and what made Bill so special. Now, here's a guy that was majority whip in Congress used to negotiate with Reagan and presidents on the budget, U.S. budget. You know, just a powerful man. He treated janitors just like he did senators. And it it was something I learned from him because he said, hey, there's value in every person regardless of the job that they do. And you never know when that janitor could help you do something. So treat them with respect. And that was something I always learned and something that was a valuable lesson for me. I agree. And that, like I said before, I think that those kinds of conversations are so crucial to finding out what people are really all about and to learn from them. So why do you think mentorship is so important? There's value in experience. And it's, I don't want to criticize today's generation, but I think that a lot of today's Come on, gener- give it to us. We can take it. <laughs> a lot of the way society is today is that, you know, people want instant gratification. Uh, when That's I was true. at Nestle, I did a lot of college recruiting. And the question was, how fast can I become a vice president? Or how fast can I 
uh, run a division or how fast can I, you know, move through the company? It was not, how can I develop myself to be better? I want to go through different phases in the company so I could learn. My buddy, John Harris, who became the president of uh, CEO of Nestle Waters, he always told uh, young people that he was on a 35-year fast track. <laughs> that he, every step that he took in the company to get to be president, a CEO of our Nestle Water Company was valuable. And he cherished each one of those steps from starting at the bottom. He started at the very bottom of the company and he learned in every one of those steps. So I think there's value in all of that. And I think if I could encourage people to, you know, take your time and learn from every step. But also learn from every person that you meet. Right, because I think right. that that's what's lacking out there is that we close ourselves up when it comes to different points of views or people of even different generations. I mean, we mm -hmm. could learn so much from people who are younger than us, older than us in all categories of life. Why is finding the right mentor crucial for personal and professional development? So you want to find somebody who really wants you to succeed and has your best interest at heart. So I, I think it's important that you do some research. Find out people that are in the job or people that are doing what you want to do. Find out why they're successful. Pick up their bio, read about them, and then call them, contact them, send them a note. One thing I found is that successful people love to talk about themselves. They love to tell you why they've been successful. And most are willing to help if you are sincere, if you sincerely want to help. And the other thing is, when you get help, you got to accept the help. What do you mean by that? Like, if you ask somebody to help you get to a certain point, and they say, okay, here's what you need to do. You can't say, well, I don't want to do that. And a lot of people do. A lot of people say, I don't want to do that. Then you've killed that, that mentoring relationship. If you have a mentor, that you trust, then you have to trust in the advice that they give you. You tell the mentor what you want to do. You have an idea of where you want to go. Then the mentor uh, lays down a path for you to follow, and you have to be willing to follow that path. And too many people will say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then you don't want to have a mentoring relationship because mm -hmm. you have to be willing to follow the advice. I would agree that we have to be willing to follow the advice. And I would definitely agree that we need to make sure that we reach out to people that are not just necessarily like us. But how does someone find the right mentor? I mean, like, okay, let's say that I want to have a mentor who I've never met, but there's someone in my industry that I really admire. What's the best way to reach out? Well, I think the, the beauty about today is uh, social media. I would say if there's someone that I really want to meet, and, and to give you kind of an example, I, I wanted to be a writer when I was in school growing up, and I was uh, work, wrote for the school newspaper and, and did all that kind of stuff. So there was a guy for Sports Illustrated, a great writer I followed. So I actually wrote him. I wrote him a letter, called him. We ended up having a great relationship to the point where the guy would uh, help me with articles and eventually got me a job offer from Sports Illustrated. You worked for Sports Illustrated? No, I didn't take the job. <laughs> it was a whole other story. 
And uh, sometimes I wonder what my life would be like if I hadn't taken that job. <laughs> but again, you know, when I when I tell you, you got to take the path when a guy, when your mentor lays the path for you. Well, yeah. that sort of ended our relationship when I turned the job down, Sports Illustrated. Oh. Because he felt that that was the path. He felt like I could be a nationally known sports writer. And I needed to take this job in New York with Sports Illustrated. Now, there were a number of factors that kept me from doing it. But again, he didn't want to continue the relationship because I didn't follow through with what he had. Do you regret it? No, I, I don't. I mean, sometimes I think about what, what my life would have been like, but I'm happy with uh, the way things turned out. I think I ended up doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. What's the best advice that you've ever received from a mentor? Ask for what you want. You know, too many people don't ask for what they want. I used to have a deal with my daughter when she was in school. First week of school, she had to go to her teacher and say, you know, I expect to get an A in this class. What do I need to do to get an A? And so it did two things. One, put the teacher on notice what my daughter's expectations were. And two, my daughter knew exactly what she had to do to get an A because the teacher told her. The teacher said, hey, look, if you want to get an A in this class, here's what you have to do. So I took that uh, attitude in corporate America. When I wanted to become a vice president, I went to my boss and I said, look, you know, I want to be a vice president. What do I need to do to be a vice president? And to her credit, she gave me five things I needed to do. And so I wrote those five things down on a piece of paper. For three years, every time I met with her, I had that paper with me. And I said, you know, at the end of the meeting, I said, have I satisfied number one? And I'd cross it off. And at the end of three years, I had this paper where I crossed off, you know, all five things. And I said, look, I've done all of these things. And she said, yeah, you have. Now it's time to get you promoted. But if I never asked her for that promotion, I never would have known what I needed to do to get promoted. There was a professor at Arizona State, Ken Shropshire, grew up in L.A., and his specialty is negotiation. And I brought him in to speak to the employees at Nestle. And he said his rule of thumb is to always ask for more. If he says, okay, I want to get $100,000 for this deal, well, his thing was to ask for $150,000 because he always asks for more. And he said, usually you'll get what you want if you ask for more. But if you ask for less, you'll get less. So his thing, his rule of thumb is, Always ask for more. Decide what you want and then ask for more. What's the perspective on that? Because I've always been curious about that. Doesn't the other person already know that you're going to be asking for more than what you want? Well, they may be. They may be expecting it. But I, I don't think so because most people don't ask for what they want. We had a Black and Hispanic Employees Association at Nestle. And so... We did a survey and we asked them what was the biggest issue for them at Nestle. And they all said, a majority of them said, well, we're not getting promoted. So when we got together and I told them the results of the survey, I said, let me, let me have a show of hands of how many of you have actually asked for a promotion. And I think in a room with 50 or 60 people, only three had actually asked for a promotion or had actually told their boss that they wanted a promotion. And the feeling was that, hey, if I do a good job, I should get a promotion. No, you got to let whatever it is you want in life, you got to let people know. 
You know, if you love somebody, you got to let them know you love somebody. So you have to, in corporate America and anything you do in life, you have to ask for what you want. I agree because people don't read minds. No, they don't. And you'd be surprised how many people don't. Because, you know, uh, people don't want to get rejected. They don't want to hear, no, you're not going to get that. Or they don't want to hear, well, no, you're not going to get a promotion. So they don't want to hear that, so they don't ask. But the big thing is, you know that. Just as I had that boss that told me I would never get promoted, it forced me to to take a look at my career and what I really wanted to do, and it forced me to get better. So I, I don't think there's any downside when you ask for what you want. Because if you, if you don't get it, you find out why you didn't get it and what you need to do to get it. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective. All of this can be life transforming. So I want to segue into something a little bit different that still has to do with access, but it's about golf because <laughs> I know you're a big golfer. People play golf all the time because arguably it's one of the best ways to gain access to opportunities that you might not always have or access to people that you might not always be able to reach. Uh, would, would you agree with that? Do you think golf opens doors? Oh, big time. I felt like I would never play golf. Game was too slow. You know, I resisted it until I was actually in my 40s. I had resisted playing golf. There was no way I was going to play golf. But what I found out is that I missed out on a whole bunch of meetings. When we would have outings at Nestle, CEO and all the guys would go off and play golf. And so I was left out of four hours of discussion, four hours of networking, four hours of you know, finding out what's going on in the company. So I decided that I would just learn to play golf well enough so I could play with the guys. And then I became one of the best players and one of the guys that everybody wanted to play with. So I was included with all of them. And that's one of the things that I learned when I was going to business school. The reason why I got into golf is because a professor, one of my business professors said to me, you really need to start playing golf. And Obviously, I don't think that a lot of people consider specifically getting into a sport just because of the networking, but I did realize that it was a good opportunity to get to know different types of people. Because at the time, my friends didn't play golf, so my social circle wasn't around golf. I had to get out of my comfort zone completely to seek out this experience, and then that led me to meeting other types of people, which again, who I would have never met had it not been for golf. So I would definitely agree that it opens doors. But I, I have to say something. It is so hard to get people to golf when they don't have the money or when they don't grow up around that atmosphere. So you created a an organization called the Advocates Pro Golf Tour. Can you give us a brief background on the organization and the why behind it? Well, we actually started an organization. I kind of, from the beginning, I used to get 
my buddies together and we would play golf at different places around the country. And we would just, you know, maybe 20 or 30 of us would get together. And so there was this one time we were in Palm Springs and I said, okay, I'll buy a set of golf clubs and everybody put in $50 and we'll raffle off the set of golf clubs and we'll give the money to a local charity. And the response was overwhelming. When we raised a bunch of money and one of the guys that was there had started this uh, foundation and we were able to give money to his charity. And it really started me thinking, well, here were guys that love golf, number one, but also had achieved some level of uh, success and were really interested in maybe helping others. And so I started an organization called Advocates USA. I formalized it, got a nonprofit, 501c3. And we started to have two events like that around the country. We gave scholarships out. We, we did all those kinds of things. We introduced kids to the game. We bring in 50 to 100 kids to each one of our, we call them gatherings. And we bring uh, 50 to 100 kids to each gathering and we would uh, give them golf lessons. And we would also, have mentoring sessions where we actually spent time talking to the kids about career and life. Well, one of the members, uh, Adrian Stills, had played on the, the PGA Tour. And so we had a conversation one day and he said, you know, look, when I played, there was an African-American golf tour. And so we had a chance to actually hone our games and get ready for the PGA Tour. Today, it's so expensive for guys that they don't have that same opportunity. So it got me to thinking, uh, and so I went out, I got some money from Nestle, got some seed money from Nestle, and we started the Advocates Professional Golf Association Tour with three tournaments, $4,000 first prize, and that was back in 2010. And so nine years later, we've got seven tournaments, uh, first prize ranges from seven to 12000 you know, we had, we were given guys an opportunity to realize their dreams. It's a tough road for a golfer, but at least we're providing an opportunity for them to realize their dream. And what I love about the organization is that it brings together kids from the community, the local community. Every tournament you guys have around the country brings together kids from the local community. And you guys have clinics about health and about career and golf. I know that there are probably people out there rolling their eyes saying like, but um, golf is elitist, right? So how does it really open doors if it's basically a game about keeping people out? I know that I used to feel that way. And sometimes I have a hard time defending the game to people who have trouble being able to afford to play golf. What do you say to that? There's a big effort to um, make golf more affordable for people. Now for us, we want to introduce the game, especially to young people, because there are a lot of programs for young people where they could play for hardly any cost at all. The first tee is a nominal cost. Kids can get clubs to, to use, and they could really get a good foundation in golf at a very young age. Now, one of the reasons why we started this youth portion to our golf tournaments is that we said that if we want kids to really do well in life, that it's not enough to say you need to go to college, you need to be, you know, you need to get an education. 
that you needed to have a well-rounded life. And part of that was you needed to pay attention to your health. Health is a huge thing. If you want to be successful in life, you got to be healthy, as healthy as you can be. The other thing is too many uh, minority kids aren't exposed to different careers. I never thought about a career at Nestle when I was you know, 15 years old. I didn't know anybody in corporate America. So we get people that look like them that spent time in, in a variety of fields to actually talk to these kids about what life is like and, and inspire them to tell them that they, if they do the things that they're supposed to do, that they can be successful in life. And really, that's kind of my mission for the rest of my life is to really inspire uh, a level of hope. You know, my parents always told me I could be anything I want to be. So I want kids to believe that too. And our tour, you know, I, I struggled with whether I should call it uh, dream, the dream tour because really it's an opportunity for people of all different backgrounds to really realize your dream. Now, it may, your dream may not end up being on the PGA tour, but you're getting an opportunity to reach for your dream, to, to go for your dream. And I think there's an old saying that says, if you shoot for the moon or something like that, if you miss, you'll end up among the stars. Well, we're giving guys an opportunity to follow their dream. And for the guys that pursued our career and didn't make it to the PGA Tour, they're working at Merrill Lynch. They're doing really well. They're running golf courses. And some of them are playing on the at the highest level. But there's other guys that use the experience from our tour to take that to another career. You're providing access, which is the whole point of this conversation, right? I mean, you get access through mentorship, great mentorship, but you also you know, can get a lot of access through golf. In corporate America, just like you said before, you could be missing out on important conversations if you don't play golf. Is that fair? That I guess there's this sport that is expensive and kind of hard to learn, <laughs> not kind of, very hard to learn, mm -hmm. that sometimes keeps people out of the conversations that are important to their careers. Is the expectation that you should play golf in order to advance in your professional life, is that fair? Well, I don't think you have to. My, cer certainly, my boss at Nestle uh, hates golf. She, <laughs> she never played. When she had meetings, she arranged spa outings. So, you know, I felt as a golfer kind of when I was in her group that I was an outcast. Uh, now, the CEO was a huge golfer, loved it. So every time he had a meeting, we played golf. But I, I think you find common ground with people. You know, for me, it was through golf. See, I, I think the notion that golf is really too expensive to get into is not necessarily ac accurate. Because if you have a job in corporate America, I mean, you can afford a four or $500 used set. Because I'm sure you go out, you do different things. I mean, it's a... It's priorities. But now I'm not saying in order to be successful, you have to play golf. You don't. You could do it another way. Golf is just one avenue, and it worked for me. But again, I'm using the example of uh, my old boss, Judy Cascapera. She hated golf. Mm -hmm. And she became, she's the chief people officer at the world's largest food company. So I think you have to find which path works for you. Speaking of access again, you played golf with Tiger Woods. What was that like? Oh, it was awesome. 
when you play golf with them, you know you're playing with one of the greatest of all time. I mean, it's just it's a it was an unbelievable experience. Uh, and, and he was gracious enough when I asked him questions about technique or how to play this shot. He was gracious enough to uh, to really part some advice to us. But the thing about Tiger that I really admire more so than just all the majors he's won and all the golf tournaments he won, he's won, is his foundation. And I, I've been on the board of his foundation for a few years now. Tiger comes to every single board meeting. He knows all the kids that are involved in the foundation, sets the strategic direction for the foundation. And really, um, last year when he was off and didn't know for sure if he was going to come back, uh, he came to one of our board meetings and opened the board meeting with, with kind of by pouring his heart out, by saying, look, I don't want to be remembered by this guy who won all these golf tournaments. I want to be remembered by the lives that I touched. And he said, I don't know how long I'm going to play golf, but I'm planning on living a long time. So I would like to reach millions of kids. And I want this foundation to be known as a foundation that changed the lives of millions of kids all over the world. And that was a different Tiger Woods than you see on TV. Yeah. To wrap up, I have a couple more questions for you. The first one is, what do you think is the crucial ingredient people need when it comes to developing their best selves? Well, I think, first of all, is finding out what is your best self. And I think if you want to be successful, the first thing you have to do is understand what you're good at, what you're not good at. And then the other fallacy to me that people believe in order to be successful, that they got to get better or they have to work on what they don't do well. Now, I feel that you should spend more time getting better at what you do well, that Mm. people spend too much time trying to develop their weaknesses instead of getting better at what they do. So I have one more question for you. What is your passion? Uh, My passion right now is really to make, to provide hope for young people. You know, I, I, the thing that bothers me most is when I hear young people say that they don't believe they have a future or, you know, the deck is stacked against them, that they're defeated before they even start. So I think my job is kind of twofold. My mission kind of twofold. One is to let young people know that the world is their oyster, that they could be anything that they want to be. Yeah, there's discrimination. Yeah, there's problems. Yeah, we got Trump in the White House. Yeah, we've got issues. But we've always had issues and people have overcome them to be successful. You know, it's just uh, hurdles to climb. But I've always lived my life uh, as the glass is uh, half full, that I could do anything I want. And I want to pass that on to young people. I want them to dream. I want them to see the the beautiful things that the world has to offer. And I want to be a person that, that can help them realize those dreams. I think this conversation with Ken is a great reminder of how much common ground you can have with someone you least expect. You just have to give them a chance and listen Don't miss the next episode of this Access series where we discuss access and representation with former White House Senior Policy Advisor Tom Kelly. That's episode 121.
And in the meantime, please share your thoughts on this episode by leaving a comment in the reviews. It's very easy and takes 60 seconds or less, depending on how fast you type. Your feedback helps us create the type of content you, our listeners, can most benefit from. So please help us out by leaving a comment now. You know, before you forget. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you liked this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.